0: Hey there, true crime addicts. It's me, James Renner. How you doing? Hey, uh, I'm taking this week off to wrap up the finishing touches on next week's premiere of season five of The Philosophy of Crime. I've got six new episodes coming at you. The very first one premieres next Wednesday, so check it out. And then I'll be back on Friday with your regularly scheduled true crime this week. Uh, in the meantime, here is the very first episode of the philosophy of crime I recorded back in 2018 that launched the whole thing off. It's It answers the question, or tries to answer the question, why we're so obsessed with true crime? Where did it come from? What is the true crime singularity? Give it a listen if you like it. Uh, subscribe so you're one of the first people to hear uh, the first episode of the new season this next Wednesday. I will see you back here, same bat place, same bat channel, next Friday for more True Crime this week. Thanks a lot.
1: I had a curious hobby when I was 11 years old. This was in 1989, and at the time my mother lived in Rocky River, which is this workaday suburb on the west side of Cleveland. I used to ride my Huffy Pro Thunder Z, a two-speed bike, to Westgate Mall and search for a missing girl. Her name was Amy Mahalovic. Amy was abducted on October 27, 1989, across the street from the Bay Village Police Station on a sunny Friday afternoon. I'd found her missing poster on a telephone pole, and she seemed like the sort of girl I'd pass notes to in school. I developed a crush for this girl I'd never met, and I got it into my head that I could find her, maybe rescue her. So I rode to the mall and looked for Amy in the crowds. I figured Westgate Mall had more people in it than anywhere else in Cleveland, and so maybe if she'd gotten lost or was taken by some other family, she'd end up there eventually. A jogger discovered Amy's body in February 1990. She'd been placed face down in a wheat field on the side of a county road in Ashland, Ohio, about 45 minutes south of where she'd been abducted. She'd been hit on the head with something, possibly to knock her out, and then stabbed in the neck until she bled out. She'd been sexually assaulted, too. I continued to stake out Westgate Mall, only this time I was looking for her killer. A couple classmates saw the guy who took her and worked with two artists to develop a composite sketch. The kidnapper looked kind of like John Denver, with that moppy hair and glasses. Sometimes, I'd spot a guy who looked the type, and I'd call the tip into police from the payphone by the arcade. Twenty-nine years later, Amy's case remains unsolved. She'd turned 40 this year. My life is true crime, always has been. It's the only hipster part of me, I guess. I was into true crime before it was cool. I'm asked the question often, why is true crime so popular today? I have a couple ideas about that, and there's a few other things I'd like to say about crime, and maybe about what it means to be human in this dangerous world. So I started this podcast. I hope you like it. This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. Pop culture reporters have attempted to trace our true crime obsession back to the singularity, a single event that sparked the explosion of it all. Most of them settle on the podcast Serial, which debuted on October 3rd, 2014. In the Bible of crime, Serial begat jinx, which begat making a murderer, which begat American Crime Story, The Killing Season, The Keepers, Mine Hunter, American Vandals, Search Party, My Favorite Murder* an entire new channel devoted to the genre, the Oxygen Network, and a yearly gathering of fans from across the world called CrimeCon. But it wasn't Serial that started it all. Serial only scratched an itch we really wanted to scratch. It was the thing we needed without knowing we needed it. We were already primed and waiting for something just like this. Serial, Making a Murderer, all the others that came later... They're different from the regurgitated dateline and 2020 mysteries we watched for decades in one very important way. They provided the illusion that any one of us could solve these crimes. The police weren't going to solve these cold cases. Sarah Koenig would. Documentary filmmakers would. Internet sleuths would. Suddenly, every one of us could feel as important as a cop. At CrimeCon, you can buy a shirt that says it all. I'm practically a detective. Serial was actually the end of this slide towards vigilanteism as a hobby. It was not the beginning. So what was? One candidate for the true crime singularity could be the Boston Marathon bombing, which occurred on April 15, 2013. Two brothers, Zokar and Tamerlan Zarnaev, planted homemade pressure cooker bombs near the finish line of the marathon, which detonated and killed three people and wounded hundreds more. Their motive? To retaliate against a regime that waged war on Muslims in foreign countries. I was on Reddit that day. It was my habit to read through the postings on the Unresolved Mysteries sub, where people summarized cold cases that need media exposure. As a journalist, I saw potential in Reddit as a way to generate new leads for some of these older mysteries. I've posted about the Amy Mahalovic case, and readers have sent me private messages with new tips that I've passed along to police. I saw the social media platform as another tool and a reporter's kit. And then the bombings happened and Reddit went crazy. The information came in through Reddit news subs in almost real-time streams. Police were looking for suspects and Redditors from Boston were uploading photographs from the marathon and linking to them in posts. Like thousands of others, I poured through the raw and amateur photos and shaky iPhone videos looking for the suspects. What about that guy with the shoulder bag? How about that dude with the long beard? Can we figure out who he is? Let's zoom in on his lapel. That pin, can we track it down? We can solve this if we just work together. I remember that I was aware of the potential for unintended fallout. As we linked to Facebook profiles and Twitter accounts that matched faces in the crowds, we were casting suspicion on people who might be innocent who might be victims themselves. But so what? Reddit isn't a reliable source. Who would mistake it for one? It's not the Times. It's not even the plain dealer. It's an online forum. I viewed what we were doing as a, akin to the banter shared inside a newspaper's writer's room. When I worked at Scene in Cleveland, I sometimes talked about potential suspects and the crime stories I was working on with other writers. We'd go through all the reasons why one person seemed likely to have committed the crime, and then, in the next breath, focus on another person who may have done it. This dialogue was important. It often opened up new avenues of investigation, new ideas that got us closer to a truth. Reddit was merely the writer's room, gone public. But then the mainstream media picked it up. On April 18th, the New York Post ran a photograph of two men with backpacks seen standing in the crowd at the marathon with the headline, Bag Men, Fed Seek These Two Pictured at Boston Marathon. The picture had been widely circulated on Reddit, where some were claiming these men were the terrorists the world was looking for, without any evidence to back it up. Turns out it was just a track coach and a 17-year-old kid who had nothing to do with it. Whoops. Later, I was interviewed by CNN about how I use social media to help solve crimes, And I talked about how I viewed Reddit's involvement in the marathon bombing investigation as mostly helpful. It was, after all, an easy location for disparate witnesses to gather their photographic evidence and testimonials. I took a stoic outlook. It wasn't Reddit's fault that things got out of hand. It was the fault of the people who couldn't tell the difference between an online writer's room and a legitimate piece of journalism. A Reddit post shouldn't be held to the same standard as a front-page story in The Times— Just because a person's name was mentioned in a sub didn't make them guilty of a crime. It was the people who should change, not the system. That's what I told myself at the time. People should be smart enough not to assume everything they read online is a fact. Of course, I'd made a terrible assumption. I had assumed the average reader of Reddit was intelligent and rational. The comic George Carlin would have known better. He has a line I think about a lot whenever I go on Reddit these days. Think of how stupid the average person is, and realize half of them are stupider than that. An open and online writer's room can never happen. You know why? Because people want to believe in the rumor more than they want to believe in the facts. We love a good story, and I think we would all like to be the hero that solved a crime. I have a hunch that many of the internet sleuths that investigated the Boston bombings on Reddit were fans of a series of books written by Steve Larsen. I know I was. In fact, I owe my career in no small part to the surprise success of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. If you weren't paying attention to books in 2008, the year it was published in the U.S., The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the story of an out-of-work reporter, Mikael Blomqvist, who was hired to solve a cold-case murder of a young woman on Hedeby Island in Sweden. The girl, Harriet, disappeared on the private island in 1966, and the only suspects are members of her own family. My wife, Julie, spotted the novel at a Borders, remember those, and bought it for my birthday in 2009. I had just been fired by the newspaper I worked for, Fallout from a political expose, and I was working on a novel of my own. It was good timing all around. To date, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and its two sequels have sold more than 80 million copies. To put that in perspective, a new book in the United States is considered a moderate success if it sells over 5,000 copies. According to Goodreads, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is the 45th best-selling novel of all time. A success like that doesn't just mean people think it's a good book. It means the author did something new, something nobody had done before. It means the author added something important to the genre here mystery—that will change it forever. Larson's book introduces us to the first completely realized and realistic internet sleuth, Lisbeth Salander, a geek who can solve a crime better than any detective. That novel I was working on in 2009 was a murder mystery called The Man from Primrose Lane. It was sold to an editor named Sarah Crichton, who is sort of a legend in publishing— She runs her own imprint at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, perhaps the fanciest publisher in New York. She took me out to a fancy lunch in Manhattan after the sale, and I asked her why she bought it. She thought for a moment and then said, A couple years ago, a book came across my desk. The writing wasn't great, and it was quite unnecessarily gratuitous, but some people found it compelling. I passed on it. That book was The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Your book reminds me of him. I didn't want to pass on it again. It was kind of a backwards compliment, I guess. But if not for Steve Larsson, I'd still be living in an apartment in Cuyahoga Falls, working freelance journalism jobs. When a book sells millions of copies, its ideas and characters become as ingrained in our collective consciousness as religion, as myth, as a shared history. It forever changes the shapes of the stories we tell next. So does the singularity begin with the novel The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? No, I don't think so. Not quite. A writer's mind is a crucible of contradicting thoughts and ideas. But something external had to happen to introduce those disparate ideas into a brain that puts them into a narrative structure, into themes and characters. So the question is, what inspired Larson to write The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? What was churning inside Larson's mind— ...to make him see the world in a way nobody else was seeing. Well, in 2001, when he was writing the book... Larson was thinking of three things. Two murders and something else. Stieg Larsen looked a bit like the director John Hughes. Same soft shape, same glowy skin and poofy 90s hair. They could have been long-lost twins from Chicago. But Larson grew up in Stockholm, Sweden... As a young man, he protested the Vietnam War. He joined the Communist Workers' League, and in 1977, he trained a squad of female revolutionaries in Eritrea, a small African country bordered by Sudan. After that, he became a journalist of some renown and often wrote about the rising power of right-wing extremism. According to his friend, Curdo Baski, In an article for the Daily Mail, Larson began to work more seriously on his debut novel in the fall of 2001. At that time, Larson was growing more disillusioned with the state of the world and seemed affected by two local murders. In November 2001, the body of Melissa Nordell, a famous model, was found wrapped in chains in a lake. She'd been killed by her boyfriend after she broke up with him. Then, in January of 2002, Fatima Sahundel, a Kurdish immigrant, was murdered by her own father, shot in the head in front of her mother and sisters, after refusing to participate in an arranged marriage. Larson had devoted his life to fighting fascism and the base, brutal nature of humankind, and he must have felt quite depressed about these news stories. Would anything ever change for the better? 2001 would only get worse. If you didn't live it, the fall of 2001 was a sort of great disillusionment for the world. The illusion of safety in the modern civilized world crumbled with the two towers in New York on September 11th, and we were thrust into a new reality with new rules, and a building rage to punish those responsible for our fear. I have a story about that day. I don't tell it much because it's fucking weird, and I don't know what to make of it myself. On the morning of 9-11, I was 23 years old, sharing a house with some friends outside Akron. I planned to sleep in until 10 o'clock that day because I didn't have to be at work until later. I had a very vivid nightmare. I dreamed I was on a jumbo jet with three other men and I knew we had to hijack the plane, but I was afraid of what was to come. I was waiting for the lead man to make the first move and I was incredibly tense. Suddenly, the man leaped up and grabbed the flight attendant in the aisle and shouted, We are hijacking this plane. Nobody move. I ran for the cockpit. I had to get in. At that moment, the phone rang, waking me up. I'm going to name drop here because the man on the other line was the stand-up comedian Chad Zumok, a friend of mine from college. Are you watching this, he said? Watching what, I asked. Dude, we're under attack. Turn on the TV. I turned the television on just in time to watch United Airlines Flight 175 crash into the South Tower. Everything about that day was surreal, but to wake up from a nightmare and to see it continue in the real world... It made me question everything. For those skeptics in the audience, I will offer a possible, logical answer. My bedroom at that time was on the far side of the house, and directly next door was an auto body shop, and most days they kept the garage door open with the radio playing. Every station that day was talking about the attacks. So perhaps I heard the conversations on the radio filtered through the window And it was this that inspired my nightmare. Of course, we didn't really know that it was a terrorist attack before the second jet crashed into the tower. I remember a very different world before 9-11. In America, we were safe from the brutal, bloody terrorism that existed in the Middle East. We could walk our loved ones all the way to their departure gates at the airport. We could fly with bottles of shampoo. The tall bottles. One of bin Laden's acolytes had tried to blow up one of the trade towers with a bomb in a parking deck, but it did little real damage. It was laughable. We were untouchable. What could any of them do from all the way over on their side of the world? That image of the plane flying into the tower, it left a lump in your chest because you'd never seen anything like it before. Some of you grew up in a world that came after, and you see those images in documentaries every September. But the idea that someone could hijack a jumbo jet and use it as a missile to bring down skyscrapers? That was science fiction in 2001. Watching it live on TV was as crazy as if we were watching a mothership come into the atmosphere and park over top the White House. I knew right away that I was witnessing history and that this moment changes everything after. Where did our obsession with true crime start? You want to know what I think the singularity is? It was that moment when we learned that the passengers of Flight 93 had taken the plane back from the hijackers and crashed it into a field in Shanksville, PA. That is the moment when a great existential crisis began. Why? Give me just a moment. Do you know about existentialism? It's a certain lens of philosophy that concerns itself with the concept of existing, what it means to exist. And there's a little bit of bad news here. The existentialists believe we live in an absurd world without any divine purpose and that we may die at any moment when something absurd happens to us. A tree branch falls on our picnic. A serial killer snatches us up. The driver coming at us over the double yellow line is texting his girlfriend. There's no way to prepare for the absurdity of this world. And without divine purpose, we're left to find some personal meaning in this life for ourselves. Our mission is to carry on in spite of the absurdity, and to enjoy the effort if you can. We are condemned to be free, said Jean-Paul Sartre. We are left alone, without excuse. You might know the myth of Sisyphus from the second season of Fargo. The philosopher Albert Camus wrote this essay in 1942, which became quite popular. Camus studied existentialism, and he came up with a very chilling question Does the realization that we live in an absurd, meaningless world require that any intelligent person promptly commit suicide? In search of an example of the human condition, Camus found the old tale of King Sisyphus enlightening. Sisyphus was a terrible king who lived eons ago, a man known for his trickery and deceit. He was so clever that when he died, he talked his way out of the underworld and returned to earth, unable to be killed again. As punishment, the old gods gave Sisyphus an impossible task. He was told to push a boulder up to the top of a mountain. But every time he neared the top, the boulder rolled back down, and Sisyphus had to start over again, over and over, until the end of time. There was no meaning to his existence anymore. He could only continue his job, his life, over and over again. How does Sisyphus not go insane? How do any of us keep from going insane? Why don't we just kill ourselves? Camus believed there was another solution for us, and for the tortured king. Perhaps Sisyphus could begin to enjoy his struggles, or at least accept them for what they were, and not be so down on himself about the whole thing. One must imagine Sisyphus happy, said Camus. Does the realization of the world's absurdity require us to commit suicide? No, said Camus, it requires revolt. The absurd reality of this world caught up with my generation in New York on September 11, 2001, and our revolt against it started with the deliberate crashing of Flight 93. I believe that our society's fascination with true crime is how we are coming to terms with the absurd, how we are coming to terms with the idea that we are not safe, not even in America, and we might die at any moment. Like children, we explore the idea, play acting in movies and TV, reenacting in documentaries and podcasts. We are analyzing, synthesizing this idea, contemplating, extrapolating. We are terribly fascinated by crime, but more so with the question of what we're supposed to do about it, now that we know it could happen to any one of us. 9-11 was the singularity, that singular moment where a great many of us were presented with the real world for the first time. This event inspired Stieg Larsson. It entered his mind and mixed with the stories of two murders and so much other subjective, personal tragedy and came out the other end as the girl with the dragon tattoo and arrived on shelves as if we were already waiting for it. Everything else comes after. Our society, now that it is coming to terms with itself, is faced with a choice. Do we kill ourselves? Do we let our pen up rage and frustration at the lack of control in this universe, do we let that drive us to destroy ourselves? Yesterday, President Trump tweeted about the size of his nuclear button. Our president is deeply unhappy because he desires to control everything, even the very idea of truth. We have another choice though. We could choose to accept the absurd, to acknowledge it, and to carry on, to give up the illusion of control, To cherish the little moments as we roll the rock uphill every day, the sweep of the sunset sky, the periwinkle wildflowers growing along the path, the company we keep. I find purpose in chipping away at unsolvable crimes. It gives me a sense of purpose. But I've learned to not let myself believe I can actually control the outcome of any case, to not make that my goal. The last time I gave a presentation about the Amy Mahalovic case, a man came up to me afterwards. At first, I didn't recognize him. He looked like any other man from Grafton. But then it hit me. This was Amy's father. He had stood in the back and listened the entire time. He invited me back to his house for a cheeseburger. An hour later, I was sitting at a table in his kitchen, eating a burger he'd warmed in the microwave. He didn't eat anything. We talked about a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with his murdered daughter. But toward the end, I asked him, because I had to know, if the police arrested someone for Amy's murder after all these years, would it bring him some closure? He thought for a moment, then said, There is no closure. Closure's for buildings, not people. The philosophy of crime is a fearful symmetry production. This episode was produced and recorded by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can find links to all of my books at jamesrenner.com. My latest, True Crime Addict, is about my investigation into the bizarre disappearance of Moore Murray. As well as producing and recording this episode, William Mankey also writes the music for the podcast. You can find the other things he makes at boxwoodpinball.com. I'm often asked if writing about crime makes me more fearful of the world. The opposite is true, actually. We hear about these terrible crimes only because they are so rare. And there's one simple thing that each of us can do to make abductions and kidnappings even more rare. We can spend a little time making friends with our neighbors. If everyone took the time to really get to know the people who live to the left of us and to the right of us, we'd be able to recognize who needs help in this world. Don't be afraid. Make more friends.